Chapter 7 What had Jim Simons so excited in late 1990 was a straightforward insight. Historic patterns can form the basis of computer models capable of identifying overlooked and ongoing market trends, allowing one to divine the future from the past. Simons had long held this view, but his recent big gains convinced him the approach was a winner. Simons hadn't spent much time delving into financial history, though. Had he done so, Simons might have realized that his approach wasn't especially novel. For centuries, speculators had embraced various forms of pattern recognition, relying on methods that bore similarity to some of the things Renaissance was doing. The fact that many of these colorful characters had failed miserably, or were outright charlatans, didn't augur well for Simons. The roots of Simons's investing style reached as far back as Babylonian times, when early traders recorded the prices of barley, dates, and other crops on clay tablets, hoping to forecast future moves. In the middle of the 16th century, a trader in Nuremberg, Germany, named Christopher Kurtz, won a claim for his supposed ability to forecast 20-day prices of cinnamon, pepper, and other spices. Like much of society at the time, Kurtz relied on astrological signs, but he also tried to backtest his signals, deducing certain credible principles along the way, such as the fact that prices often move in long-persisting trends. An 18th-century Japanese rice merchant and speculator named Munahisa Hama, known as the God of the Markets, invented a charting method to visualize the open, high, low, and closing price levels for the country's rice exchanges over a period of time. Hama's charts, including the classic candlestick pattern, resulted in an early and reasonably sophisticated reversion to the mean trading strategy. Hama argued that markets are governed by emotions and that speculators should learn to take losses quickly and let their profits run, tactics embraced by future traders. In the 1830s, British economists sold sophisticated price charts to investors. Later that century, an American journalist named Charles Dow, who devised the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and helped launch the Wall Street Journal, applied a level of mathematical rigor to various market hypotheses, birthing modern technical analysis, which relies on the charting of distinct price trends, trading volume, and other factors. In the early 20th century, a financial prognosticator named William D. Gann gained a rabid following despite the dubious nature of his record. Legend has it that Gann was born to a poor Baptist family on a cotton ranch in Texas. He quit grammar school to help his family members in the fields, gaining his only financial education at a local cotton warehouse. Gann ended up in New York City, where he opened a brokerage firm in 1908, developing a reputation for skillfully reading price charts, pinpointing and anticipating cycles and retracements. A line from Ecclesiastes guided Gann's moves. That which has been is that which shall be. There is nothing new under the sun. Again, the phrase suggested that historic reference points are the key to unlocking trading profits. Gann's renown grew, based partly on a claim that, in a single month, he turned $130 into $12,000. Loyalists credited Gann with predicting everything from the Great Depression to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Gann concluded that a universal, natural order governed all facets of life, something he called the Law of Vibration and that geometric sequences and angles could be used to predict market action. 
To this day, GAN analysis remains a reasonably popular branch of technical trading. GAN's investing record was never substantiated, however, and his fans tended to overlook some colossal bloopers. In 1936, for example, GAN said, I am confident the Dow Jones Industrial Average will never sell at 386 again, meaning he was sure the Dow wouldn't again reach that level, a prediction that didn't quite stand the test of time. The fact that Gann wrote eight books and penned a daily investment newsletter, yet managed to share a few details of his trading approach and, by some accounts, died with a net worth of only $100,000, raises other questions. He was a financial astrologer of sorts, concludes Andrew Lowe, a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Decades later, Gerald Sy Jr. used technical analysis, among other tactics, to become the most influential investor of the raging late 1960s. Sy gained prominence at Fidelity Investments, where he rode momentum stocks to fortune, becoming the first growth fund manager. Later, Sy launched his own firm, the Manhattan Fund, a much-hyped darling of the era. Sy built a war room featuring sliding and rotating charts, tracking hundreds of averages, ratios, and oscillators. He kept the room at a frigid 55 degrees trying to ensure that the three full-time staff members tasked with updating the figures remained fully alert and attentive. The Manhattan Fund was crushed in the 1969-1970 bear market, its performance and methods ridiculed. By then, Sy had sold out to an insurance company and was busy helping turn financial services company Primerica into a key building block for the banking power that became Citigroup. Over time, Technical traders became targets of derision, their strategies viewed as simplistic and lazy at best, voodoo science at worst. Despite the ridicule, many investors continued to chart financial markets, tracing head-and-shoulders formations and other common configurations and patterns. Some top modern traders, including Stanley Druckenmiller, consult charts to confirm existing investment theses. Professor Lowe and others argue that technical analysts were the forerunners of quantitative investing. However, their methods were never subjected to independent and thorough testing, and most of their rules arose from a mysterious combination of human pattern recognition and reasonable-sounding rules of thumb, raising questions about their efficacy. Like the technical traders before him, Simons practiced a form of pattern analysis and searched for telltale sequences and correlations in market data. He hoped to have a bit more luck than investors before him by doing his trading in a more scientific manner, however. Simons agreed with Burlikamp that technical indicators were better at guiding short-term trades than long-term investments. But Simons hoped rigorous testing and sophisticated predictive models, based on statistical analysis rather than eyeballing price charts, might help him escape the fate of the chart adherents who had crashed and burned. But Simons didn't realize that others were busy crafting similar strategies, some using their own high-powered computers and mathematical algorithms. Several of these traders already had made enormous progress, suggesting that Simons was playing catch-up. Indeed, as soon as the computer age dawned, there were investors, up bright and early, using computers to solve markets. As early as 1965, Barron's magazine spoke of the immeasurable rewards computers could render investors, 
and how the machines were capable of relieving an analyst of dreary labor, freeing him for more creative activity. Around the same time, the Wall Street Journal gushed about how computers could rank and filter large numbers of stocks almost instantaneously. In The Money Game, the classic finance book of the period, author George Goodman, employing the pseudonym Adam Smith, mocked the computer people beginning to invade Wall Street. While a segment of the investment world used machines to guide their investing and other tasks, the technology wasn't yet available to do even mildly challenging statistical analysis. Nor was there much need for models with any level of sophistication, since finance wasn't especially mathematical at the time. Still, a Chicago-based trader named Richard Dennis managed to build a trading system governed by specific, preset rules aimed at removing emotions and irrationality from his trades, not unlike the approach Simons was so excited about. As Renaissance staffers struggled to improve their model throughout the 1980s, they kept on hearing about Dennis's successes. At the age of 26, he already was a distinctive presence on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade, enough so to warrant a sobriquet, the Prince of the Pit. Dennis had thick, gold-framed glasses, a stomach that protruded over his belt, and thinning, frizzy hair that fell like a beagle's ears around his face, in the words of an interviewer at the time. Dennis was so confident in his system, which chased market trends, that he codified its rules and shared them with 20 or so recruits he called turtles. He staked his newbies with cash and sent them off to do their own trading, hoping to win a long-running debate with a friend that his tactics were so foolproof they could help even the uninitiated become market mavens. Some of the turtles saw striking success. Dennis himself is said to have made $80 million in 1986 and managed about $100 million a year later. He was crushed in 1987's market turbulence, however, the latest trader with a style that bore a resemblance to Simons's to crash and burn. After squandering about half his cash, Dennis took a break from trading to focus on liberal political causes and the legalization of marijuana, among other things. There is more to life than trading, he told an interviewer at the time. Throughout the 1980s, applied mathematicians and ex-physicists were recruited to work on Wall Street and in the city of London. They usually were tasked with building models to place values on complicated derivatives and mortgage products, analyze risk, and hedge, or protect, investment positions, activities that became known as forms of financial engineering. It took a little while for the finance industry to come up with a nickname for those designing and implementing these mathematical models. At first, they were called rocket scientists, by those who assumed rocketry was the most advanced branch of science, says Emmanuel Derman, who received a Ph.D. in theoretical physics at Columbia University before joining a Wall Street firm. Over time, these specialists became known as quants, short for specialists in quantitative finance. For years, Derman recalls, senior managers at banks and investment firms, many of whom prided themselves on maintaining an ignorance of computers, employed the term as a pejorative. When he joined Goldman Sachs in 1985, Derman says, he instantly noticed the shame involved in being numerate. It was bad taste for two consenting adults to talk math or Unix or C in the company of traders, salespeople, and bankers. People around you averted their gaze, Derman writes in his autobiography, My Life as a Quant. 
there were good reasons to be skeptical of the computer people. For one thing, their sophisticated hedging didn't always work so perfectly. On October 19, 1987, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged 23%, the largest one-day decline ever, a drop blamed on the widespread embrace of portfolio insurance, a hedging technique in which investors' computers sold stock index futures at the first sign of a decline to protect against deeper pain. The selling sent prices down further, of course, leading to even more computerized selling and the eventual rout. A quarter century later, legendary New York Times financial columnist Floyd Norris called it the beginning of the destruction of markets by dumb computers, or, to be fair to the computers, by computers programmed by fallible people and trusted by people who did not understand the computer program's limitations. As computers came in, human judgment went out. During the 1980s, Professor Benoit Mandelbrot, who had demonstrated that certain jagged mathematical shapes called fractals mimic irregularities found in nature, argued that financial markets also have fractal patterns. This theory suggested that markets will deliver more unexpected events than widely assumed, another reason to doubt the elaborate models produced by high-powered computers. Mandelbrot's work would reinforce the views of trader-turned-author Nassim Nicholas Taleb and others that popular math tools and risk models are incapable of sufficiently preparing investors for large and highly unpredictable deviations from historic patterns, deviations that occur more frequently than most models suggest. Partly due to these concerns, those tinkering with models and machines usually weren't allowed to trade or invest. Instead, they were hired to help and stay out of the way of the traders and other important people within banks and investment firms. In the 1970s, a Berkeley economics professor named Barr Rosenberg developed quantitative models to track the factors influencing stocks. Rather than make a fortune trading himself, Rosenberg sold computerized programs to help other investors forecast stock behavior. Edward Thorpe became the first modern mathematician to use quantitative strategies to invest sizable sums of money. Thorpe was an academic who had worked with Claude Shannon, the father of information theory, and embraced the proportional betting system of John Kelly, the Texas scientist who had influenced Elwin Burlikamp. First, Thorpe applied his talents to gambling, gaining prominence for his large winnings as well as his best-selling book, Beat the Dealer. The book outlined Thorpe's belief in systematic, rules-based gambling tactics, as well as his insight that players can take advantage of shifting odds within games of chance. In 1964, Thorpe turned his attention to Wall Street, the biggest casino of them all. After reading books on technical analysis, as well as Benjamin Graham and David Dodd's landmark tome, Security Analysis, which laid the foundations for fundamental investing, Thorpe was surprised and encouraged by how little was known by so many, he writes in his autobiography, A Man for All Markets. Thorpe zeroed in on stock warrants, which give the holder the ability to purchase shares at a certain price. He developed a formula for determining the correct price of a warrant, which gave him the ability to detect market mispricings instantly. Programming a Hewlett-Packard 9830 computer, Thorpe used his mathematical formula to buy cheap warrants and bet against expensive ones, a tactic that protected his portfolio from jolts in the broader market.
During the 1970s, Thorpe helped lead a hedge fund, Princeton Newport Partners, recording strong gains and attracting well-known investors, including actor Paul Newman, Hollywood producer Robert Evans, and screenwriter Charles Kaufman. Thorpe's firm based its trading on computer-generated algorithms and economic models, using so much electricity that their office in Southern California was always boiling hot. Thorpe's trading formula was influenced by the doctoral thesis of French mathematician Louis Bachelier, who, in 1900, developed a theory for pricing options on the Paris Stock Exchange using equations similar to those later employed by Albert Einstein to describe the Brownian motion of pollen particles. Bachelier's thesis, describing the irregular motion of stock prices, had been overlooked for decades, but Thorpe and others understood its relevance to modern investing. In 1974, Thorpe landed on the front page of the Wall Street Journal in a story headlined, Computer Formulas Are One Man's Secret to Success in Market. A year later, his fortune swelling, he was driving a new red Porsche 911S. To Thorpe, relying on computer models to trade warrants, options, convertible bonds, and other so-called derivative securities was the only reasonable investing approach. A model is a simplified version of reality, like a street map that shows you how to travel from one part of the city to another, he writes. If you got them right, you could then use the rules to predict what would happen in new situations. Skeptics sniffed. One told the journal that the real investment world is too complicated to be reduced to a model. Yet, by the late 1980s, Thorpe's fund stood at nearly $300 million, dwarfing the $25 million Simons' medallion fund was managing at the time. But Princeton Newport was ensnared in the trading scandal centered on junk bond king Michael Milken in nearby Los Angeles, ending any hopes Thorpe held of becoming an investment power. Thorpe never was accused of any impropriety, and the government eventually dropped all charges related to Princeton Newport's activities. But publicity related to the investigation crippled his fund, and it closed in late 1988, a denouement Thorpe describes as traumatic. Over its 19-year existence, the hedge fund featured annual gains averaging more than 15% after charging investors various fees, topping the market's returns over that span. Were it not for the government's actions, we'd be billionaires, Thorpe says. Jerry Bamberger had few visions of wealth or prominence in the early 1980s. A tall, trim computer science graduate from Columbia University Bamberger provided analytical and technical support for Morgan Stanley's stock traders, serving as an underappreciated cog in the investment bank's machine. When the traders prepared to buy and sell big chunks of shares for clients, acquiring a few million dollars of Coca-Cola, for example, they protected themselves by selling an equal amount of something similar, like Pepsi, in what is commonly referred to as a pairs trade. Bamberger created software to update the Morgan Stanley traders' results, though many of them bristled at the idea of getting assistance from the resident computer nerd. Watching the traders buy big blocks of shares, Bamberger observed that prices often moved higher, as might be expected. Prices headed lower when Morgan Stanley's traders sold blocks of shares. Each time, the trading activity altered the gap, or spread, between the stock in question and the other company in the pair, 
even when there was no news in the market. An order to sell a chunk of Coke shares, for instance, might send that stock down a percentage point or even two, even as Pepsi barely moved. Once the effect of their Coke stock selling wore off, the spread between the shares reverted to the norm, which made sense, since there had been no reason for Coke's drop other than Morgan Stanley's activity. Bamberger sensed opportunity. If the bank created a database tracking the historic prices of various paired stocks, it could profit simply by betting on the return of these price spreads to their historic levels after block trades or other unusual activity. Bamberger's bosses were swayed, setting him up with half a million dollars and a small staff. Bamberger began developing computer programs to take advantage of temporary blips of paired shares. An orthodox Jew and a heavy smoker with a wry sense of humor, Bamberger brought a tuna sandwich in a brown bag for lunch every single day. By 1985, he was implementing his strategy with six or seven stocks at a time while managing $30 million, scoring profits for Morgan Stanley. Big bureaucratic companies often act like, well, big bureaucratic companies. That's why Morgan Stanley soon gave Bamberger a new boss, Nunzio Tartaglia, a perceived insult that sparked Bamberger to quit. He joined Ed Thorpe's hedge fund, where he did similar trades and eventually retired a millionaire. A short, wiry astrophysicist, Tartaglia managed the Morgan Stanley trading group very differently from his predecessor. A native of Brooklyn who had bounced around Wall Street, Tartaglia's edges were sharper. Once, when a new colleague approached to introduce himself, Tartaglia immediately cut him off. Don't try to get anything by me because I come from out there, Tartaglia said, pointing a finger at a nearby window in the streets of New York City. Tartaglia renamed his group Automated Proprietary Trading, or APT, and moved it to a 40-foot-long room on the 19th floor of Morgan Stanley's headquarters in a midtown Manhattan skyscraper. He added more automation to the system, and by 1987, it was generating $50 million of annual profits. Team members didn't know a thing about the stocks they traded and didn't need to. Their strategy was simply to wager on the reemergence of historic relationships between shares, an extension of the age-old buy-low-sell-high investment adage, this time using computer programs and lightning-fast trades. New hires, including a former Columbia University computer science professor named David Shaw and mathematician Robert Frey, improved profits. The Morgan Stanley traders became some of the first to embrace the strategy of statistical arbitrage, or STAT-ARB. This generally means making lots of concurrent trades, most of which aren't correlated to the overall market, but are aimed at taking advantage of statistical anomalies or other market behavior. The team's software ranked stocks by their gains or losses over the previous weeks, for example. APT would then sell short, or bet against, the top 10% of the winners within an industry while buying the bottom 10% of the losers on the expectation that these trading patterns would revert. It didn't always happen, of course, but when implemented enough times, the strategy resulted in annual profits of 20% likely because investors often tend to overreact to both good and bad news before calming down and helping to restore historic relationships between stocks. By 1988, APT was among the largest and most secretive trading teams in the world, buying and selling $900 million worth of shares each day. 
The unit hit heavy losses that year, though, and Morgan Stanley executives slashed APT's capital by two-thirds. Senior management never had been comfortable investing by relying on computer models, and jealousies had grown about how much money Tartaglia's team was making. Soon, Tartaglia was out of a job, and the group shut down. It wouldn't be clear for many years, but Morgan Stanley had squandered some of the most lucrative trading strategies in the history of finance. Well before the APT group closed for business, Robert Frey had become anxious. It wasn't just that his boss, Tartaglia, wasn't getting along with his superiors, suggesting the bank might drop the team if losses arose. Frey, a heavyset man with a limp, the result of a fall in his youth that had shattered his leg and hip, was convinced rivals were catching on to his group's strategies. Thorpe's fund was already doing similar kinds of trades, and Frey figured others were sure to follow. He had to come up with new tactics. Frey proposed deconstructing the movements of various stocks by identifying the independent variables responsible for those moves. A surge in Exxon, for example, could be attributable to multiple factors, such as moves in oil prices, the value of the dollar, the momentum of the overall market, and more. A rise in Procter & Gamble might be most attributable to its healthy balance sheet and a growing demand for safe stocks, as investors soured on companies with lots of debt. If so, selling groups of stocks with robust balance sheets and buying those with heavy debt might be called for if data showed the performance gap between the groups had moved beyond historic bounds. A handful of investors and academics were mulling factor investing around that same time, but Frey wondered if he could do a better job using computational statistics and other mathematical techniques to isolate the true factors moving shares. Frey and his colleagues couldn't muster much interest among the Morgan Stanley brass for their innovative factor approach. They told me not to rock the boat, Frey recalls. Frey quit, contacting Jim Simons and winning his financial backing to start a new company, Kepler Financial Management. Frey and a few others set up dozens of small computers to bet on his statistical arbitrage strategy. Almost immediately, he received a threatening letter from Morgan Stanley's lawyers. Frey hadn't stolen anything, but his approach had been developed working for Morgan Stanley. Frey was in luck, though. He remembered that Tartaglia hadn't allowed him or anyone else in the group to sign the bank's non-disclosure or non-compete agreements. Tartaglia had wanted the option of taking his team to a rival if their bonuses ever disappointed. As a result, Morgan Stanley didn't have strong legal grounds to stop Frey's trading. With some trepidation, he ignored Morgan Stanley's continuing threats and began trading. By 1990, Simons had high hopes Frey and Kepler might find success with their stock trades. He was even more enthused about his own medallion fund and its quantitative trading strategies in bond, commodity, and currency markets. Competition was building, however, with some rivals embracing similar trading strategies. Simons's biggest competition figured to come from David Shaw, another refugee of the Morgan Stanley APT group. After leaving the bank in 1988, the 36-year-old Shaw, who'd received his PhD from Stanford University, was courted by Goldman Sachs, and was unsure whether to accept the job offer. To discuss his options, Shaw turned to hedge fund manager Donald Sussman, who took Shaw sailing on Long Island Sound. 
one day on Sussman's 45-foot sloop, turned into three, as the pair debated what Shaw should do. I think I can use technology to trade securities, Shaw told Sussman. Sussman suggested that Shaw start his own hedge fund, rather than work for Goldman Sachs, offering a $28 million initial seed investment. Shaw was swayed, launching D.E. Shaw in an office space above Revolution Books, a communist bookstore in a then-gritty part of Manhattan's Union Square area. One of Shaw's first moves was to purchase two ultra-fast and expensive Sun Microsystems computers. He needed Ferraris, Sussman says. We bought him Ferraris. Shaw, a supercomputing expert, hired math and science PhDs who embraced his scientific approach to trading. He also brought on whip-smart employees from different backgrounds. English and philosophy majors were among Shaw's favorite hires, but he also hired a chess master, stand-up comedians, published writers, an Olympic-level fencer, a trombone player, and a demolition specialist. We didn't want anyone with preconceived notions, an early executive says. Unlike the boisterous trading rooms of most Wall Street firms, Shaw's offices were quiet and somber, reminding visitors of the research room of the Library of Congress, even as employees wore jeans and T-shirts. These were the early days of the Internet, and academics were the only ones using email at the time. But Shaw gushed to one of his programmers about the new era's possibilities. I think people will buy things on the Internet, Shaw told a colleague. Not only will they shop, but when they buy something, they're going to say, this pipe is good or this pipe is bad, and they're going to post reviews. One programmer, Jeffrey Bezos, worked with Shaw a few more years before piling his belongings into a moving van and driving to Seattle, his then-wife Mackenzie behind the wheel. Along the way, Bezos worked on a laptop, pecking out a business plan for his company, Amazon.com. He originally chose Cadabra, but dropped the name because too many people mistook it for Cadaver. Almost as soon as he started the engine of his Ferraris, Shaw's hedge fund minted money. Soon, it was managing several hundred million dollars, trading an array of equity-related investments and boasting over 100 employees. Jim Simons didn't have a clear understanding of the kind of progress Shaw and a few others were making. He did know if he was going to build something special to catch up with those who had a jump on him, he'd need some help. Simons called Sussman, the financier who had given David Shaw the support he needed to start his own hedge fund, hoping for a similar boost. <laughs>